Hello, what's going on everyone and welcome to Uncaged. We're bringing you a little bit of sports. We're bringing you a little bit of entertainment, a little bit of comedy, and maybe why not a little bit of pop pop politics. Get getting ready, uh, excited for the new show. You're easily a, a, a tier one YMCA My man team was talking best. spicy and then he retracted his statement. You, you, you can't do that. Buns. Just buns. I want to say mad buns because like I like the thought buns. I think they're doing the best that they can. It's not good enough. You're listening to Uncaged. Thank you and peace out. Uncaged featuring Ahmed Quadri and Jake Lampert is available now under the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast feed wherever you download your podcast. Blue Hen Sports Cage on 91.3 WVUD with Teddy Gelman. I feel like I need to stand up in studio here and kind of experiment with how that would work. Brandon Halvec. Their whole defensive line has been arrested once or twice over the past two years. Ahmed Quadri. Yankees are fun to watch, end quote. That's it. That's all I ever said. And Jake Lampert. Eat more chicken. There you go. I'll throw a slogan in there if anyone here is uh, working for Chick-fil-A and wants to throw me some sandwiches. It's Sports Talk Radio on 91.3 WVUD. Welcome to the cage. Let's hop right into it with the men's basketball game this afternoon. Delaware came away with a 97-96 overtime win. And not only is it an exciting game down the stretch because it goes to overtime and it's a one-point game, uh, but because Delaware really did not look great at the beginning of this game, they trailed by 11 at the half, which many would probably say they were lucky to have trailed by because Stone Gettings, the 6'8 junior forward of the Big Red, had 26 in the first half. And he hit 6 of 7 from 3, was on fire. Delaware really had no no way of stopping him, no answer for him. Uh, and then even in the second half, their leading scorer, Matt Morgan, who averages 24.4 points per game, uh, he got it going too. So they had their top two scorers on career days. 39 was the finishing number for Gettings and 34 for Morgan, yet the Hens were still able to compete and come back into this game. Ryan Allen, the freshman guard, had 24 points to lead the Blue Hens off 9 of 20 shooting and 6 of 11 shooting from 3 in 45 minutes. He did not come off the floor throughout the entire game Delaware played with a six-man rotation as freshman guard Kevin Anderson was out of today's game with a knee injury. They had foul trouble throughout. They were shaking up the lineup. Daly came down with an injury midway through the game and played through it in the second half. It was really an up-and-down game, back and forth. There were seven lead changes, uh, but Delaware comes away with the victory and a pretty big win considering that it puts them at 7-6, and six, above five hundred in non-conference play for the first time since I've been here and for the first time in the Martin Inglesby era. And we got to see a few of the other guys throughout the lineup step up with the absence of a Kevin Anderson. Plus, one of the things that I tried to point to on the broadcast with Ahmed is that we also got to see the value of Kevin Anderson, that without Anderson, the team early on in this game looked lost offensively. They shot 38% from the floor in the first half. Uh, But then once they really got it going, Mosley stepping up, Allen stepping up, even daily down the stretch, it looked like 
a competitive playoff team against a really good Cornell team that got, again, 39 and 34 from their two leading scorers. Yeah, it seems like they did a nice job down the stretch to be able to remain competitive with this team that's a very good Cornell team and not a conference team that we know is competitive in their league every single season. And I know that oftentimes we look at the record for a team and we don't pay too much attention to it, but this is important that they are above 500 here. When you look at the way this team had been playing over the last couple seasons, they had played just around or just under 500 basketball through out-of-conference play. But this year, to get three wins in a row heading into the game against UNCW to open up the conference slate, that's important even with the, or more so even with, as I said, the injuries that they've had to players kind of shuffling in and out of the lineup. Ryan Allen, he's been impressive. He's continued to grow in each game to put up those 24 points today. And then Daly, who's had a bit of a subpar, I think that's what we've agreed on, early portion of the season to still put up 19 points and hit those 8 out of 10 free throws for something that he struggled with. This is a good team effort, and to score 97 points, that's not something we say too often about this team. Of course, they gave up 96, but this is a solid Cornell team that they're facing, and I think Coach Inglesby has got to be encouraged by the effort that he saw out there this afternoon. The 97 points from Delaware was a season high, and the 24 from Allen is a career high. You mentioned that you've been impressed by him. Kind of expand on that. What did you see from him heading into today's game as a guy who came in averaging 12.3 points per game but shot under 40% from the field coming into today? You know, I, I like his confidence, and I like his, his ability to get up and shoot the basketball. That's something that this team has been looking for for a few years now. I'm talking even before when they had Corey Holden the talented guard who transferred to South Carolina. This team last year was led by Ryan Daly, and in the year before Ryan Daly, this was a team that pretty much couldn't find much offense. And last year, there wasn't really any offense besides Ryan Daly. And this year, alongside Daly, to have Allen come in with his freshman counterparts, Kyrie Walker, Kevin Anderson. Of course, he didn't play today out with the injury. And then get some of these other pieces Anthony Mosley, Eric Carter, some of the veterans surrounding, it gives you more options. And for Ryan Allen to come in here, and since he came onto the court for the first time this season after the early season suspension, this is good from a team perspective, of course, individual perspective as well. But for Ryan Allen to consistently put up scoring efforts that would rank him first, second, third in the team scoring for an individual game, Looking down the stretch, I feel that if this Delaware men's basketball team is going to remain competitive as they very much have been so far now and be a threat in the CAA this season, but even more so next season and the year beyond, he's going to be an integral part of where this team goes alongside Ryan Daly. And I know for a while, or back in a show we had in December, we, we debated a little bit, you know, is Ryan Daly still the best player on this team? And we were all kind of hesitant but still said, I think at this point he is. I'm not about to jump on ship and say Ryan Allen is better than him, but it's certainly nice to have a player that can score the basketball and take some of the load off of Ryan Daly. So the way yeah. he shoots the basketball and the way he's become a good aspect of this team in the backcourt has been very helpful so far this season. Well, well, to me, it, it's tough to even say, all right, well, let, where does Ryan Allen stack up 
to to Daly. Not that you even have to pick a best guy, but if you were, I still think Kevin Anderson is still a part of that discussion. He has to be. Here's a guy who leads CAA freshman in points per game, assists per game, basically doing what Ryan Daly did last year. At this point last season, Ryan Daly was not the 16-point-per-game, 7-rebound-per-game guy that he finished the year at, uh, and it was throughout the conference play where he you know, he had to go above those numbers to counter his slower start because he was not a starter at the beginning of the season. He wasn't playing 35-plus minutes at the beginning of the season, but you're starting to see that Anderson and Allen are already, I think, a big part of that rotation, partly out of necessity because of the injuries and because Derek Woods is been kicked off the team but at the other token of that it's also because of the talent and we had that another discussion of should Kevin Anderson be getting all these minutes or should Anthony Mosley be getting more minutes Mosley prior to last week's out of conference game against CSU Bakersfield had played less than 30 minutes in excuse me four straight games he comes back into the picture because of the Anderson injury Um, but you you look at the talent that Anderson and Allen have just the raw talent to score the ball. And I think Anderson may be a little bit more of a complete game facilitating and on the defensive end, it, it's going to be fun to watch. And I think you start to see in games like this where those guys step up down the stretch, as did the veterans like Mosley and Carter. But when you see an Allen and a Daly step up down the stretch, you start envisioning maybe these are going to be the types of plays they make in a CAA tournament a year or two years from now. Yeah, and Ryan Allen, when he came into this season after he missed the first couple games, ever since November 22nd, he has scored at least 10 points in every game except for the previous game on December 20th against CSU Bakersfield. He's putting up consistent scoring efforts. And, of course, you mentioned Kevin Anderson. He was putting up that and more. You know, Hopefully he's healthy because he's going to be a key part of this team moving forward. But when you have these guys in the backcourt, Anderson, Allen, Daly, and then you throw in some Kyrie Walker, you throw in a little Anthony Mosley, it opens things up. And I'll have to, I mean, you called these last couple games here on this holiday break. What specifically, I'm interested in how this, the productivity of these guards is affecting what they are able to do in the interior, specifically with Eric Carter. He put up a good game today, 15 points, six for nine shootings, six for nine shooting, 12 rebounds, a very solid performance. And if you can have that guard productivity and a double-double from Eric Carter inside, that gives you a very well-balanced attack offensively. Well, that's funny that you brought that up because when Delaware actually made their 8 to nothing run to close regulation and send the game to overtime, it was with a small lineup. They took Carter out and put Kyrie Walker in at the 5, and they had Mosley playing through foul trouble with 4 fouls. So they actually went small, which helped them counter... Um, Stone Gettings because Gettings had four fouls so he wasn't being very aggressive inside which allowed them to play small and spread Cornell's defense out which opened up driving lanes for Daly and Mosley in particular and then kind of that kick out to Allen was his game he uh, had six makes excuse me nine makes in the game but six of them came from three so he was doing a lot of his damage from three on kickouts from Daly and Mosley but through the middle portion of this game and I think for most of the season they're going to need one guy inside that one interior presence and to open the game they went four straight post feeds to Eric Carter so I think the the guard play 
feeds off of the interior play just as much as the interior play feeds off the guard play. And what I mean by that is if Ryan Allen is hitting shots from three, you're less likely to see double teams coming on Eric Carter when he gets low post position. So he's then able to go one-on-one, and not against every defender in the CAA and at this level, but against a lot of them, he has enough uh, footwork and a little touch on the baby hook to get it done one-on-one. And if he's hitting it one-on-one down low, then they will start bringing that double team or they maybe will be forced to. And if they do get aggressive and do that, he can kick it out. And that's where it opens it up for an Allen and Anderson and Daly to start hitting shots from the perimeter. So I think those two things work in tandem. I don't think they can always play small because there are teams that are going to have big guys that pose problems for them defensively. I think Ryan Daly as a four defensively poses a lot of problems and even Kyrie Walker He was playing four or five defensively. That's tough to keep up with a lot of teams that have a true big man. But on the offensive end, they can do it kind of either way. And I think when they have both facets of the offense rolling, it really allows them to open things up in both ways. And that's what you saw today with the 97-point performance. And and I'm and we I know we don't like to get all caught up in stats and and trends overboard to the point where when this player does this the team wins. But let's take a look real quick at what happened over the last six games that Eric Carter has played. He didn't play against Navy on December first. The Blue Hens lost four in a row. Yale on uh, November twenty seventh. Navy on the first of December. Buffalo the sixth of December. Notre Dame on the ninth of December. Carter played three of those four games one of them out with injury. And in the three games, Yale, Buffalo, Notre Dame, that that he played, and they lost, he scored a total of 10 points in those three games. Now you look at the three-game winning streak that they're on, Dell State, CSU, Bakersfield, and Cornell. Carter has scored 41 points in those three games. I don't like to look at stats as some kind of bulletproof nature where if he does this, the team wins. But that's a pretty good glimpse that this team is more successful when they're able to get him involved. And then you get that scoring behind the arc and, you know, behind the foul line as well. So I think having Carter along with these freshmen and Daly in tandem is going to be very important down the stretch. One other thing I think we should highlight before we move on to CAA play and their matchup against UNCW is the lack of depth. And I want to get your thoughts on Delaware playing today with a six-man rotation and possibly having to do this or maybe seven, eight-man rotation moving forward because of injuries and just an overall lack of depth right now. We don't know the status of Kevin Anderson long-term. It doesn't seem like a serious injury, but uh, you know they're playing in two days from now. It'll be interesting to see if he plays against UNCW. Daly was hurt in the second half. He told us on our post-game show that he could barely walk. He took a knee straight into his knee and had a pretty big bruise that had swelled and he played through it all throughout the second half, but he was visibly hobbling after the game. You wonder what his status is, and then they're still without Jacob Cushing for a long time. Carter has dealt with an ankle injury. Mosley missed a game last week. So here and there, they continue to lose guys in and out of the lineup, which has forced them to play with a tight rotation. Do you think that takes a toll on this team, and how how do you think they'll try to counter that uh, moving forward? Yeah, it definitely takes a toll. And, and I want to just clarify real quick. I might have missed it if you said it, but but Darian Bryan is still out, correct? No, Bryan is back. He played. Brian he's played. Uh, I mean, you want to point to another thing with this winning streak. He's played these three games in the winning streak, but he was out two previous games before that. So Darian Bryan, 
we speculated a lot last year was going to become a player that would add something off the bench, and I think he's going to have to because you look at the rotation yeah. that they're basically using here. But and you look, you look that. at what he did today, 40 minutes, 8 points, 6 rebounds, but I thought he played very good defense, and from the middle of the second half throughout overtime, he didn't come off the floor. And maybe he's not going to be this guy who goes out there and scores 15, 20 points off the bench. Maybe that's not who he yeah. is. And maybe they don't need him to do that. Maybe they're going to use him as, as a good defender to come in and help out and score some timely buckets. But Anderson's going to need to be healthy for this team to create any kind of damage. But back to your original question. Yes, I do think that having a limited number of players available definitely hurts the team down the stretch because when you get into conference play, and let's let's consider over the last couple games here, there has been a considerable amount of time in which they haven't played games, you know, playing four games a week. They've had a little bit of space between these games. But when you open up conference play here, you're playing two, three games a week. And it's going to take a toll on the bodies if you don't have the players that you can go to. But then again, maybe this is what they're going to have to deal with because Cushing no timetables to return as far as we know, right? Correct. Okay. And then you got Derek Woods off the team. Sky Johnson, he's going to play a little bit, but I think Sky Johnson's days as a quality contributing blue hen are probably over. They probably played his best time in the Monte Ross era. Might be, but, but he might have to because you look right. at who, who's going to spell Eric Carter. If Carter gets in foul trouble, you can't go to Derek Woods. Is Kyrie Walker, while he's a big guy, does he have that toughness inside to defend the center on the other team? I'm not sure. So no, I mean, I think that's got, a mismatch if you have to play him at mm-hmm. center for 40 minutes. It is. It is a mismatch. So they're going to have to figure some things out. I'm, I'm thinking mainly in the paint because I think guards can play a heavy dosage of minutes. If Anderson is healthy, you look at what they have, and if Darian Bryant can – get something going to be a contributor as opposed if he can become a real asset as opposed to a liability i think he'll be really working in the back court but my concern would be in the front court and i didn't get too high on Derek woods before his um removal but i was i was thinking that this was going to be a guy yeah. who would help down the stretch i think he's a guy that you could look at and minutes. say Okay, 15, 20 minutes a game mm-hmm, sure. if we need him. He's not going to light it up, but he's not going to be, like you kind of said before, he's not a liability, right? We can get by with him in the middle of the game and then get back to Carter in the fourth or in the you know end of the second half. Now, but if Eric Carter is going to go out there and put up and play 30 minutes, 35, 37 minutes a game in CAA play and he can stay healthy, maybe this question of who's going to be the 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 center coming off the bench to help in the paint isn't as big of a question. So we talk about questions that we can ask as to where this team will go down the stretch. Hypothetically here, if Eric Carter is healthy and is putting up double-doubles, I think this team is in great shape. The problem is we haven't seen that kind of play on a consistent basis, so that's where I might be concerned. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. The women wrapped up their CAA play last week against Loyola with a dominant victory, headlined by Nicole Anabosi's 23-point and 20-rebound performance. It was her eighth consecutive double-double, and for her efforts, she was awarded her second straight 
CAA Player of the Week award. And Teddy, tell me if I'm wrong, but in my eyes, she is the front runner, clear front runner for CAA Player of the Year. She leads the CAA in points per game, rebounds per game, field goal percentage, and there's really not anybody even close. Crystal clear. There's no doubt about it. She's the best player in the CAA, and it's almost time. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but it's almost time for us to start talking about where she might rank in the all-time Delaware women's basketball stats or rankings, if you will, all time. I know that's another conversation, but she's been dominant. She's got her teammates involved. She's unstoppable. She's like a train. When she goes into the paint, she bullies her way through there, puts up consistent double-doubles. She just had the 2020 game. She's a huge threat, and she, the team goes as she goes. Matt and I also called that Loyola game uh, on the 22nd, just before the holiday. It was Pretty much a dominant game from start to finish. 71-38 to 38 was the final. The Blue Hens, kind of like the men's team, were playing without a few key contributors. Most notably, Abby Gonzalez missed her first career game, who is the Hens' starting point guard. They were also without backup point guard Danielle Roberts. So the Hens started both Bailey Cargo and Justina Mascaro in the backcourt, and they split point guard duties. It was the first time for both of them to be in that role. Uh, but it really didn't matter. They were all over Loyola early. It was Nicole Anabosi mostly in the first half, and then the whole team came alive in the second half. We know how good Anabosi is. We kind of covered it there. We could go on and on about all of the different ways that she gets by defenders inside and her finishing ability at the rim, plus her touch you know, from 18 feet out. But what can you say about the supporting cast around her that – at least in my mind, I think has taken a clear step forward from where it was at a year ago. I credit it to mainly Natasha Adair and her coaching staff and what they've been able to do with this group and, of course, the developments that comes with it. But the ones that stand out clearest for me, and probably you would agree here, is Simone DeFries and Bailey Cargo alongside Anabosi. Yep. How Cargo is shooting the three up there, top five in the CAA. First. How do, first. So I, I was a little careful with how I worded that. Yeah, when she even, you know, we talked about it a week ago and even the week before that, and she was second or third and kind of back and forth. She is now far and away number one, shooting 44% from three this year. 26 of 58 on the season. She's developed some confidence with that shot, and we talked on the postgame show with her after an early December game about what what it's like, is it a mental thing now that she's not wearing that knee brace? And she said, you know what, it is. And a lot of times players say, oh, it doesn't matter, I'm just doing my thing. But she said, it's just to know I'm not playing with that on my leg is helpful for me knowing that I have that, those full, you know, able to just take those three-point shots. But then alongside her, Simone DeFries has been a very, very, pleasant player off the bench at the start, and now a contributing player in the front court and in the back court with this team. Abby Gonzalez, we're seeing, continued to help the team out in the assist role, but I've also been impressed with the freshmen. I think Lizzie O'Leary has probably stood out most to me. I know Justina Mascaro started at the beginning of this season, then she moved back to the bench. This team still was playing without Makeda Nicholas for a very long time, and They've found some depth in the front court with O'Leary. Rebecca Lawrence has improved. And you look outside of Enabosi last season. We would look outside Enabosi 
Of course, we had Erica Brown and Hannah Jardine, but oftentimes we may have overrated the impacts of those two players relative to what Nicole Anabosi was doing. This year, it's very clear that Nicole Anabosi is the main player, the best player in the CAA, and Natasha Adair and her coaching staff has given her team the confidence to believe that they can utilize a variety of players and a variety of offensive, offensive styles to contribute. Their scoring is up. Their defense is strong. It's, it's been an impressive start for this team. And that these games that they're winning at this point this season, they were losing some of these last season. Yeah. They were losing to the, the, a team such as Army. They're just getting by Loyola, scoring 47 points past Loyola last year. These are little things that we can analyze at the beginning of the season and think that they'll go a long way toward determining this team's fate down the stretch. I almost forgot that this team is without Makeda Nicholas, who was one of, I guess, three regular returning starters to this team. Cargo started about half the season last year and has been a regular this year, but they really haven't missed her. And I think we should say that Nicole Anabosi was not nearly this good last year. She in my opinion, was still their best player, but I don't think she was quite to this level as a person who could take a game over. I mean, she still was first-team All-CIA. She's one of the best five players in the conference, but she has definitely taken a step forward. But as you said, everybody else around her has also probably taken a bigger step forward. And I'll mention Justina Mascaro just real quick because she had a career-high 12 points filling in for Abby Gonzalez. I thought she actually brought a little bit of a different dimension than we don't see from Gonzalez on a regular basis. She was driving to the basket and getting contact inside, which we don't often see from Gonzalez, who typically is shooting from you know around the elbow, free throw line, extended area, and from three, and not necessarily finishing at the rim. I thought Mascaro um, had a standout game in that sense that she gave a different dimension, and we actually got to speak to her on the postgame of that game, and she mentioned that she didn't feel like she initially had the confidence to do that and that she was kind of just forced into it in this game because they didn't have Gonzalez or Robert, so she had to. And maybe that's something that continues to allow this team to grow as players of that nature who haven't had big roles at the beginning of the season being forced into bigger roles and growing as a product of that. I want to ask you about the women's team, CAA Hopes, now. First off, is it fair to say that the women are better aligned for a postseason run than the men's team? That's a tough one. I mean, I'm thinking about the way that the men's team is playing right now, and if the men's team hits its... If the men play as best as they can play, I'm starting to really think about what they can do beyond maybe just one win or so. The women's team, though... You know, I think as of now, this woman's team is, is in a position, a better position to be competitive because they've already been semi-competitive. The men's team, I guess, is, is going from the bottom. I guess you don't want to say the bottom anymore now because they're, they're kind of up there a little bit more. But two years ago, they're at the bottom, and now they're trying to, I guess, get up to relevance. The woman's team has been relevant for years. Their quest is to get out of mediocrity and to become a top team. And right now, to sit tied for fourth in the CAA means nothing unless they can come out of the CAA tournament with a push and a chance to go far. I think if they continue to do what they're doing right now, there's no reason for me to want to say that this team 
should be considered a heavy underdog to anybody they play. Of course, we haven't seen these William and Mary, Elon teams, Drexel teams. They'll see Drexel very soon. We haven't seen these teams in person. But the way they're playing right now, I mean, you, what else can you say? You have to think that they're one of the best teams in the CAA. And the men, I'm not sure if they're there yet, but if they can get up there toward the middle to maybe just above half portion of the CAA in toward the end of February, that's a success for them. But probably, yeah, I think this women's team, they're playing very well right now, and it has to mean something. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. As it currently stands in the AFC New England and Pittsburgh will be the top two seeds, though the order of those two could change. Most likely, it will be New England as the top seed. As with a win against the Jets, they will take the top seed. Uh, And Pittsburgh uh, will be the second seed. Jacksonville and Kansas City are locked in at three and four. And then it's a four-team race for the wild cards between Baltimore and Tennessee. They're in there at five and six right now. And, excuse me, Los Angeles and Buffalo at seven and eight. We'll get into those uh, scenarios in just a few moments. We'll take a look at the NFC right now as well. Philadelphia is locked in at the number one seed. They face off against Dallas this weekend. Minnesota likely will be the two seed, though there is a scenario where they fall uh, down to the three or four seed. The Rams and could be three or four, but they're resting their players, so they will most likely be four. And then you have New Orleans and Carolina, both locked into playoff spots, but battling for division berths. New Orleans could be as high as three and as low as five. Carolina could be as high as two and as low as five. And then you have Atlanta and Seattle battling for the wild cards. Both of those teams not guaranteed to be in the playoffs. Let's start quickly with the AFC wild card picture, and I'll start with you, Jake. What are you expecting to see from these four teams at large uh, this weekend? What's kind of the top thing you're watching between Baltimore, Tennessee, LA, and Buffalo, those four teams competing for the final two wild card spots? I think what we're going to see is that these last two wild card spots are going to go to Baltimore as the five and the Chargers at the six. I think Tennessee sitting at the six seed is a good place for them to be, but it would have to come with a win against, I believe they're playing the Jacksonville Jaguars, which we saw were vulnerable against the 49ers last week, but I think Tennessee should not beat that Jacksonville team, and I'll be surprised if they do, because while Jacksonville has clinched the AFC South, they don't want to see Tennessee. They don't want to see another team in their uh, area come and make the wild card as we're going to see in the West, too. So I think we're going to have Baltimore and the Chargers line up the last two spots. Another disappointing playoff miss for the Buffalo Bills, and I don't think Tennessee gets it in. So I think it's going to be Baltimore at the five and the Chargers at the six. Teddy, your thoughts? I agree. I think Tennessee is one of the weakest possible playoff teams that we've seen in any recent season. If the Ravens were to beat the Steelers a couple of weeks ago, what I would think about Baltimore would probably be different than what I say now. They're, Joe Flacco has played a little better. They're, they're led by their defense. But overall, it's a pretty weak AFC beyond the top couple teams. But I don't think the Titans will get in. I, I like the Chargers here. And I think the Bills, another season of them being, what, 7 or 9, 8 and 8, stuck right around 500. But... My collective impression about these AFC wildcard teams is that I don't really believe any of these wildcard teams in the AFC will be any threat to 
the rest of the field. Maybe they'll get by one game, but unlike many seasons, I don't think you've got anybody in the AFC wildcard picture who is a legit threat down the stretch. In the NFC, Carolina or New Orleans will be the five seed, and then it's between Atlanta and Seattle. Both of those teams are nine and six, so Atlanta clinches the sixth seed with a win or a Seattle loss. Seattle needs to win and also needs Atlanta to lose. So Atlanta, you'd think, would be in the driver's seat, but they're facing off against Carolina. Seattle has Arizona. So Seattle has the easier matchup, but needs a win and a Falcons loss. We'll start uh, with with the Falcons, Teddy, facing off against Carolina, who's playing for their own seating above them. Not asking you to pick the game yet, but this is probably the most important game as far as teams getting into the playoffs. And you know it also factors into where Carolina will be. What do you see from that matchup? And is it safe to say, or maybe I'll just pose it this way. I won't, I won't load it, but are you? would you be more scared of these five and six teams, whoever it might be in the NFC, compared to the five and six teams in the AFC? Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's no doubt about it. Any of the teams in the NFC right now, there are questions about several of them. Well, there's really questions about all of them. But I think Seattle, Atlanta are probably deserving to be where they sit right now six seven depending on what happens this week but who knows you got russell wilson and matt ryan you don't have that in the afc those are two guys that have been to super bowls and if they get rolling in the playoffs you don't know what can happen i know this is a little bit less likely to happen than say in baseball where a team just gets hot and runs the table but we've seen it with aaron Rodgers. we've seen it with nfl teams before so I agree that the NFC wildcard teams are way more dangerous. The NFC, excuse me, are way more dangerous than the AFC teams. But these Atlanta Seattles have some questions of their own. And what happens this weekend will go a long way toward answering those. Between Atlanta and Seattle, Jake, which team do you think poses the better threat to go deep into the playoffs? Uh, I think it's almost a lock in Seattle. I think that. Yes, I think the Atlanta team is actually better than the Seattle team. But I think if you have the ball with five minutes left in the fourth and it's in Russell Wilson's hands, besides Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers, there's you, you can't put a value on having the ball in Russell Wilson's hands late in the game. We've seen it all this season. The Russell Wilson magic is so impressive. I think he they have the opportunity to go deep. And I also want to say that Looking at the whole playoffs as a whole, it's a really weird picture when you think that if the games go a certain way, we might see Russell Wilson and even somebody like Matt Ryan, potentially, one of the two of them missing the playoffs. But on the other side, we can see quarterbacks like Tyrod Taylor and Blake Bortles in the playoffs. I don't think anyone at the beginning of the year was saying, yeah, I think, well, either Matt Ryan or... Russell Wilson's going to miss the playoffs and uh, just lock up Blake Bortles in there with the best defense in the NFL. So this is a whole weird playoff scenario. But I think, back to your question, if if I have to pick Atlanta or Seattle to make the run, I'm going to give it to Seattle. And maybe it speaks to the NFC's depth and strength as a whole compared to the AFC. We'll go to the AFC first, and I want to ask about both conferences, but AFC first. Who is a team... Among the six that you think will get in, so you guys said Baltimore and probably L.A. as five and six, 
that could be a surprise team to make a run. I think, you know, we look at New England, Pittsburgh as the clear-cut one and two with the Patriots, New England, as the clear-cut number one. They're 12-3, and but, you know, anytime you have Tom Brady in the playoffs, it's a tough team to beat, especially when they're going to be playing in Foxborough, most likely throughout the playoffs. Is there a team outside of those two that you see making a deeper push than maybe what most people are expecting, uh, starting with you, Teddy? Well, I'd be inclined to say the Jacksonville Jaguars, but what will lead me to be hesitant saying that is the way Blake Bortles played against San Francisco last week. I know it was against Jimmy Garoppolo, who, if he he was happening to start start earlier this season, maybe the 49ers would be a playoff team, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, I'd like to give him the benefit of the doubt, uh, Bortles that is, and say that maybe it was just a dud, but the problem with him is that he's had duds throughout the entire early portion of his career. So the Jaguars are only going to go where Blake Bortles go, be- goes because their defense is sensational. We know that, but you can only be so sensational in those late January games in Heinz Field, in Foxborough against Roethlisberger or Brady. So if Blake Bortles steps up to the plate, absolutely, the Jags are a threat. But I'm hesitant about that. Beyond Jacksonville, I'm not so sure. I don't think Kansas City is is has what it takes. I think they've got it going a little bit, but I'm gonna leave it at Jacksonville for now. And Jay- I mean, you there there are two different coins here. You have the the West, which is the division of surprises this season. You have the East, which is a division of you can just sit and get ready for Tom Brady facing off against Ben Roethlisberger in the AFC title game. I don't think there's gonna be any threat with any team that makes the playoffs to New England or Pittsburgh. I think Pittsburgh's firepower, even with Antonio Brown a little hobbled, is almost unmatchable besides with the New England Patriots. I think the New England Patriots with Tom Brady and Bill Belichick are unmatchable in their coaching staff, besides even like an Andy Reid coaching staff in Kansas City. I don't think anyone's going to be a threat to them. I'm going to say if any of the possible teams can propose a, a challenge— I'm actually going to go with the Chargers here. The Chargers had a great run. They're manned by a veteran, really strong quarterback in Phillip Rivers. But the wide receiver core has become something to talk about with Keenan Allen and Terrell Williams even. Tight ends and Hunter Henry, the young Hunter Henry and the old eternal veteran Antonio Gates. And Melvin Gordon in the background and Austin Eckler, whoever they want to put him in. That team has a lot of interesting pieces that I think it poses a threat. I don't think they're going to make that threat, but I think if any team would, if I would pick any team to compete with this New England and Pittsburgh, I would probably give it to the Los Angeles Chargers. You're listening to Blue Hen Sports Cage on 91.3 WVUD with Jake Lampert and Teddy Gelman. I'm Brandon Hovac. Let's take a look now at the NFC, which you see Philadelphia and Minnesota at the top of the conference at 13 and two and 12 and three respectively. But it's probably safe to say that this conference is more wide open than the AFC. You have Los Angeles, who played Philadelphia very tight when the Eagles had Carson Wentz. You have New Orleans at 11-4. and That has threatened teams atop the conference. They played a close game against the Rams earlier this year. And then you have the Carolina Panthers, who beat New England earlier this year. They've lost to some teams they probably should have beat, but they're still at 11-4 and as well. I'm going to start at the top with Philadelphia, after the 19-10 to win, albeit an ugly win, an atrocious win for the Philadelphia Eagles, 
where do you guys stand with the Eagles as far as their playoff chances and all that that involves with, you know, we know Nick Foles, the quarterback for the rest of the season, the injuries they've had and so forth. Where are you at with this team after that loss? How much does it change your opinion of the Eagles' chances and so forth? I'm going to still say, still be confident with this Philadelphia Eagles team. It looked ugly. I'll, I'll agree with you, Brandon. It was really ugly against the Oakland Raiders, a team that the Eagles, in retrospect, should have stomped. But I still have faith in them because they're the number one seed, because they are one of the most well-rounded teams in football right now. Their defense is strong. Their offense is strong. But the biggest question mark, and I think everyone is at pegging this as the biggest question mark, is which Nick Foles are you going to get? Are you going to get that Giants game where Nick Foles threw four touchdowns? It looked really good. Are you going to get this Oakland game where Nick Foles really didn't look too good against the team that he, he should awful. have put up say it, a three Jake. or he four touchdown game? All right, I'll <laughs> we'll we'll say we'll say that he wasn't the Nick Foles that we expected him to be. If we get good Nick Foles, if we get the Giants game Nick Foles, if we get that two or three years ago Nick Foles, Philadelphia's a threat. Philadelphia's a true number one seed. Be scared of them. But if they don't have Nick Foles and they really have to rely on their defense and their two running backs who are good, I don't see them being as successful as I'd like to be. They are going to probably go half and half this uh, week against Dallas. They'll probably play their starters for the first half, rest them for the second half. They're going to be all healthy. They're going to have the bye, so they'll have a... Well, I don't, I don't know if you could great. say they're going to be all... I mean, you're looking at Hopefully. a team without their left tackle, their middle linebacker, and their quarterback. And the quarterback. They're not... They're, you can't say they come into the playoffs healthy, but I see your point. They're going to have two weeks well, to figure this out. The players that are playing are going to be well-rested. They're going to have... The, their starters are going to be well-rested. Mm-hmm. So if if they get good Nick Foles, the ceiling's the roof. But if they have uh, the little uh, Oakland Raiders Nick Foles... I can see any of these teams in the NFC easily taking care of them. Teddy, I think. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you, just real quick, what your thoughts on the Eagles? Well, I was just going to say real fast now, this great Nick Foles that Jake is referring to, I don't at all mean to, to sound like I'm mocking you, Jake, but uh, did we ever see a great Nick Foles beyond a couple very brief stretches? I think where a lot of Eagles fans are coming from right now in this concern, this frustration, this worry, this lack of confidence, is that Nick Foles, it's hard to imagine him putting together consecutive playoff games against quality defenses in cold January-type atmospheres. I think Nick Foles could have a good game, but a good game is not what it's going to take to get out of, say, the divisional round. It's going to take a great game. So right now with the Eagles, real quick, I'll be done. I put him in the middle of the NFC playoff teams. I wanted to ask you about Minnesota, Teddy, because – I think you were on to that team maybe a little bit before uh, some other people were. Jake, you too. Um, this Minnesota team, obviously, you know, Case Keenum coming in for Sam Bradford and Teddy Bridgewater, no Dalvin Cook, no problem. They've been atop the NFC all year long, sitting now at 12-3. and three. Where do you put them among NFC playoff contenders in terms of likeliest to make it to the Super Bowl? They're the favorite. They're definitely the favorite. They have the best defense in the NFC, and they have a quarterback who has been playing the best among quarterbacks who we didn't think would be playing well. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. We'll start off with Georgia versus Oklahoma, 5 o'clock. Teddy, just get us started here. Outline your overall expectations for this game and for these two teams. 
these are two teams, Georgia and Oklahoma, that have quality offenses, quality passing attacks. Obviously, we know about May- Baker Mayfield at this point, overwhelming winner for the Heisman Trophy. What did he get? Something like 80% of the votes. Um, and then you've got Jake Fromm for Georgia, a nice young passer over there. These teams can run the football as well. These teams have defenses that are not, that's not what they're known for like say a Clemson is, but these are teams that are going to throw the football well. They have blown out a lot of their opponents. They played some close games throughout the season in which their passing attacks and their offenses got the job done down the stretch. So this should be a very entertaining game at first glance from the overall perspective here, an entertaining game. And I think a Georgia team, maybe both Oklahoma and Georgia, that we maybe didn't predict at the start of the year would be at this point. A lot of people were looked looked in the Big Ten or maybe in the Pac-12 for some other teams, but these two teams were going to be in the conversation, and they had great seasons. This should be an entertaining one, and right now I have no reason to think that this won't come down to the final couple minutes. I don't envision any type of a blowout here on uh, – and I, you said New Year's Eve, but I actually think they changed it to New Year's Day. I'll have to double check it, but I believe they might have changed it to New Year's Day sure. this year. Yeah, you're right. Monday, January 1st. That actually works out because it's tough to you know, be somewhere New Year's Eve and keep tabs on the game. You don't want to just kind of sit down and watch these games, especially um, you know, when it gets down toward the end of the game. And for the 845 game, that's approaching midnight, at least on the Unless- East Coast. Unless of, unless, of course, you get invited somewhere and you say don't want to hang out with the people you're invited with or you're antisocial, it's a great excuse to sit down and watch some football. But either way, you got a great slate of January 1st day games, not to get off topic here. And I should also clarify, before I identify them as the Citrus and the Rose Bowl, I did that mistakenly, Georgia versus Oklahoma is the Rose Bowl, which sounds weird to have those two teams because they're not from the Big Ten and Pac-12, but the college football playoff games the bowls rotate so they throw that one in the rose bowl and that's at you know pasadena in california and then alabama clemson 845 sugar bowl that's from the mercedes-benz doom uh down in atlanta so i think one of the interesting points getting back to these two teams georgia and oklahoma that you brought up was that particularly georgia wasn't a team that we expected to be here and you look at the sec First, obviously, it's Alabama as the favorite. Then it was Auburn, who I think all four of us put into our Final Four. We thought that they would win that SEC championship game over Georgia, but the Bulldogs get it done. Compared to Oklahoma, they seem to be a less spread-out, prolific offensive attack. Do you foresee them having any problems keeping up with that space-and-pace type of offense that Baker Mayfield and the Sooners have pretty much ran everybody off the field with? It's a legitimate question. It could be a problem, but I think that Georgia has, I guess, to an extent, done what Oklahoma did, but maybe not as flashy or not as um, dramatic down the field. But this Georgia team put up a lot of points throughout the season. There's a reason this Georgia team ran through their side of the SEC and then later taking care of Auburn in the SEC championship. This is a team with a very good offense. And I wonder if the, let me figure out how to word this, but if the space available would slow down a little bit on a championship level stage. Yeah. We saw, we Sometimes saw that they happen don't, a, they a don't little They don't call everything, yeah. too. You know, it, you can maybe get away with more on the perimeter 
as far as defensive backs up against wide receivers. Yeah, so I wonder if that'll be the case. I mean, I'm sure you'll ask in a couple minutes about picks for this game, but I think Oklahoma is probably, if you judge it based on what they've done this season, as far as what they can do in a passing game, they clearly have the edge there. And with Baker Mayfield, you got the Heisman winner, you've got the edge there. But this is a Georgia team that faces a very high level of competition, especially down the stretch in November into December. It should be a good one. And I think Georgia, that to me, that's not the biggest issue here. But I also think that they'll have to contain Baker Mayfield. And that's right. something that, that Georgia's defense is clearly preparing for over these last couple of weeks. All right, let's flip over to the Sugar Bowl. Alabama versus Clemson, a rematch of each of the last two national championships. I'll, I'll just say this. I know a lot of people, particularly with Alabama, are tired of seeing that team in the college football playoff. And, you know, you kind of maybe search for reasons on why an Ohio State or a USC should have been in the playoff in front of Alabama, if you're one of those people. I, for one, I don't mind seeing this matchup for a third time. And even though it's not a national championship, but to see it at this level of stakes in, in the first round, you know, it's kind of my same thinking with Golden State and Cleveland. You want to see the best, and I think that these two teams are so evenly matched year to year that you always get an exciting, good game out of it, the same way that you always get good games, especially in elimination games, between Golden State and Cleveland. Even if one team like Cleveland, or excuse me, like Golden State was last year, is maybe favored by a little bit more, as Clemson is in this one as the number one team in the nation. What are your thoughts kind of on the recurrence of these two teams and people starting to turn on them, maybe not starting for Alabama, as you know, in terms of their popularity because they have this recurring success in the same way that a Golden State or a New England does in their respective leagues. Yeah, I thought you did a good job kind of recapping that and explaining that as to the mindset that some people have entering this one. My question, which is somewhat of a rhetorical question to people who would be upset that Alabama appears frequently in these championship caliber games is do you hate that they're there just because they're good or is there some underlying thing you can hate the not to go on some incredible tangent here but you can dislike the warriors because the one of the best players in the nba kevin durant chose to go to a team that was already winning and you think they're just getting richer and richer you can hate the patriots because they allegedly supposedly whatever you want to say cheated multiple times in different ways what can you say about Alabama beyond the fact that Nick Saban, who is right now, maybe other than Dabo Sweeney, is the best coach in college football and has recruited the best players year in and year out? They haven't done anything wrong. There's been scandal on scandal in college football. And as far as I know, unless I'm ignorant here, Alabama has not been caught up in it. So to answer that part of the question, I see nothing wrong with Alabama being there again. They're clearly one of the most dominant teams, and I think it's good for the sport to have a dominant team. Now, Clemson is probably an even more dominant team based on what they've done this season coming off of their great win in the national championship last season. I think this game is, I think a lot of people, even maybe the television stations would hope this game is championship. You talk about ratings, ratings. Yeah. Championship would get that. But in an extent, we look at the other side of it. Maybe it's good that this is the first game as opposed to the final game. Because this way, 
you look at what the Oklahoma-Georgia game has to offer and the depth of dominant teams in college football this year has really been opened up. And you look at some of the quality teams that maybe didn't make it in. And Alabama, without a doubt, should be in. They're better than Ohio State. They're better than USC, Washington, Penn State, et cetera, Oklahoma, or Oklahoma State, excuse me, Virginia mm-hmm. Tech. You could go on and on and on. So I think it's good for the sport. I don't entirely understand the people that hate them for being there when it doesn't exactly pertain to how they dislike some of these other teams in the four other major sports. So I think it's good for the sport. And on the surface, we'll get into the matchup. It's definitely going to be a good game. Absolutely. I want to get your picks here. Georgia, Oklahoma first. Who do you think is going to win and why? I like Oklahoma because of Baker Mayfield. And I don't like to get caught up in stuff like that and just choose because of one player. I've seen both these teams play. I think Georgia's had a great run. But I'm going to pick Baker. I'm going to pick Oklahoma because they have the best player this season in terms of individual accomplishments. I wouldn't be surprised if Georgia wins, though. I'm with you. I'm going to pick Oklahoma. I kind of was with you. you. I don't like to always say, you know, this team's going to win because they have Russell Wilson, even though another team like the Rams might be more well-rounded, let's say, for an example, in the NFL. But I think recent events show you, again, maybe remind you how valuable the quarterback is. You look at what Philadelphia and the NFL has become without their quarterback. You look at what Houston became without Deshaun Watts, and you look in college football, what some of these teams go through when they graduate a quarterback and the next year they don't have an able replacement, even though a lot of the same talent returns, uh, which partly which makes it so remarkable that Clemson is as good as they are because they found another quarterback right away in Kelly Bryant, but not many teams are able to do that. I think Baker Mayfield is a difference maker, and I think he's going to be the difference in this one. I think it might be a little bit more sloppy than a normal game for both teams, but he'll make enough plays at the end to win it for Oklahoma. Alabama, Clemson, night game, who do you have? I like Clemson here. I I want to say Alabama because of their dominant year and that one loss to Auburn and you know number 4, maybe they're a little under the radar here, but to me Clemson is far and large the best team out of this four team field. They've got the best defense in the country. Their offense, which had some question marks, of course, at the start of the season without Deshaun Watson, has been very solid. I think they're the most well rounded team. And I think Alabama may have a little bit of trouble scoring points towards the second half, maybe even the first half of this game. I'm going Clemson, best team in the country. I got Clemson, too. So we both have a Clemson-Oklahoma National Championship. That won't be until Monday, January 8th, uh, down in Atlanta at 8 p.m. on ESPN. But for the heck of it, your national champion pick uh, two weeks out. Oh, boy. You know, I'll have to see how they play in these games on, uh, what will it be, Monday? Subject Monday to change. You know, we'll talk about this next week, too. Subject, subject to change. I Right now, this is kind of like what we talked about early on in the show when we were talking about the NFL and the biggest threat to say the Patriots or the Steelers and I said well as of now of course it's those two because they've done it and you can't pick anybody over the Patriots because they do it I'm not going to pick anybody over Clemson because I haven't seen anybody do it that's a very reasonable explanation in my mind they haven't nobody nobody's beaten them best defense unless they fumble around here on Monday I think they are fit to be a national champion once again yeah, I think that um, pick game earlier in the year was an aberration. I don't think uh, you can go three or four seasons in a row completely undefeated. I think 
that this is the best team in the country. They're the most well-rounded. I have Clemson. That's all the time we have. Any closing thoughts, guys? Nope, we'll be back in full force, I think, next week. I think all of us will be down there for a little full show to look after for that. Yeah, stay warm. It's freezing cold. I'm actually outside right now. I'm crazy. Yes, I am. Stay warm. Happy New Year. We'll be back in studio next week. All right. Thank you very much. Talk to you guys soon. amazing like no one can stop her it's incredible to watch her honestly on the bench playing with her yeah she's a beast